There's a woman that writes a column in a magazine section of the Sunday paper. Her name is Marilyn Savant. And she was asked to write this column because she has a very high IQ. So there's an equation in this culture, maybe particularly that having a high IQ equates having a lot of wisdom. So this is kind of up for grabs, but um, this is how we think sometimes. So someone wrote a letter into her. She answers questions about math and about um, puzzles. And every once in a while, someone writes a letter asking how to live their life, that kind of, that kind of question. So someone at one point wrote a letter and said that her life was going really well, an, an older person, and that um, she'd accomplished a lot in her life. She felt quite satisfied with what she had accomplished. And so all she wanted to do at this point was to develop some self-knowledge. So she asked Marilyn two questions. She asked, first of all, is this odd to want self-knowledge? Which is, you know, kind of interesting in and of itself. Marilyn answered and said, no, it's not odd. Reassuring. (laughs) And also, if it's not odd, how do I go about developing self-knowledge? Is there some way? So Marilyn uh, suggested, and I thought this was a a good answer, uh, that this person travel and go to a foreign country. Because when we travel, as some of us know, especially if we travel outside of the country, um, things are different, things are unfamiliar, um, we have to see things in a different way, and we learn a lot about ourselves generally because we're not in familiar surroundings. However, you know, you need a passport, you need to have the proper clothes, it's expensive. Is there another way? And this, of course, is where meditation comes in. There is indeed another way. Practice is about studying the self. Yeah? We, we have all these ideas about what practice is. And some of them we've heard about, some of them we've read about, some of them are rumors. You know? But really, what is practice? Practice is the study of the self. Dogen, who was an ancient Zen master, put it like this, to study Buddhism is to study the self. In other words, it's one and the same. However, to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things in the world. So this is what I'd like to talk about tonight, is studying the self and forgetting the self, thus being awakened by all things in the world. Maybe I won't use that as a title. (laughs) Little little on the long side, Rodney. So what, what is it to study ourselves? You know, what does this mean to study ourselves, to learn about ourselves, to come to some degree of self-knowledge? Clearly, clearly it's essential. Um, Maharaj Nisargadatta, who was a very wonderful Indian sage, said that we are slaves to what we don't know about ourselves and we're masters of whatever it is that we do know about ourselves. In other words, even if we're seeing a really difficult fact or something that's extremely unpleasant about ourselves, if we know it, there's not as great a charge to it. There's a way 
in which we can work with it much more compassionately, much more carefully than if we don't know. Studying oneself involves looking and noticing and observing throughout any given day, throughout any given hour, one's tendencies, one's habits, one's patterns. Um, Kind of waking up to what we do in a mechanical way, and this is the whole thing behind being mindful, is that we can watch our mechanical ways of moving and being, and notice whether we're moving in reactivity rather than a responsiveness. In other words, whether we're, we're kind of um, oppressed by our habits uh, rather than simply being comfortable with our habits, noticing if there's some degree of being imprisoned by our habits, and um, noticing if we really you know, want to keep them around. So being aware of patterns, looking particularly at what is repetitious, what happens over and over again, noticing inwardly, noticing with friends, noticing with family, um, noticing when we're in the store, um, you know, whatever situation we're in, noticing whatever it is that's repetitious. And we can begin to see a lot about ourselves if we can pick up on that which is repetitious instead of just letting it go by. So many different examples of this, so many different ways, if we're mindful, of seeing into ourselves a little bit more clearly. I remember um, my first longer retreat. I was amazed to discover that that I had this habit of coming up with this um, memory, several memories, several very pleasant memories from the past. No, I'm sorry, several very unpleasant memories from the past. And at one point, I realized that I just didn't want to feel how unpleasant the memory was. And so I would change it into a positive ending. You know, just quite habitually, quite mechanically, um, I couldn't stand the ending. It's like the beginning was okay, the middle was not so great, I knew the ending was horrible. So I would, I would actually change the ending. And I didn't even know it until I kind of hung around with my mind a little bit. And that's kind of what we're doing in practice is we're hanging around with ourselves so that we can see, um, you know, kind of our assumptions and our conclusions and and questioning our conclusions about how much we think we know ourselves. We all tend to come to practice from the viewpoint of if I don't know myself, you know, things are really bad. Nobody else does. And yet we discover that we don't. And it's, it's quite, you know, it's quite wonderful. It's quite exciting. It's quite fresh to discover these things, you know, to begin to look at the different habits and patterns that we may have, to really study, to notice um, how we sleep, things like this. What, what is our relationship to sleep? Do we always oversleep? Do we have some idea that to be a spiritual being is to not sleep very much and to, you know, be kind of chronically under, undernourished with sleep, which is kind of common um, for yogis, actually, and maybe in the world these days, too, for other reasons. But just some sense that we're wasting our time or we're wasting our life when, our, when we're sleeping. And yet, of course, um, no, no health, no, no real balance in life unless we look at this really important area. 
and not compare ourselves with others, but really find out about ourselves, taking it very personally. Looking at eating, looking at this very important arena of eating, and seeing what our relationship to food is, not assuming from the past what our relationship to food is, but being very willing to enter into the arena of food, looking very carefully at whether we think we can find a lot of happiness through food. You know, whether we, there's this, this hope that maybe we can find a lasting sense of happiness through a carrot. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> we may not exactly put it like that, but inside, maybe this is what we feel. This is what we're, we're sensing, and we try, and we try, and we try, and of course, our meal's always over. It, it never turns out any other way, you know, other than being over. And yet we try, and we try, and we try again. So just, just to be aware of the ways that we are trying to find satisfaction um, from that which is impermanent, but seeing it at the same time, maybe our relationship to food is that we shouldn't enjoy food, we shouldn't have desire. And um, this needs to be looked at as well, to come to a wholesome, healthy relationship with something that we do at least three times a day, maybe a lot more, but to see if we can keep this area in balance for ourselves, learn about ourselves, not judge, not think we know, but come to it in a really fresh way. Maybe we have attitudes or judgments about other people, how other people eat. You know, we think we're kind of okay, but other people are always eating the wrong thing. Um, You know, this might be a really good area to look at. There's a lot of ideas (laughs) that we have about how others should eat because of how, you know, our aspirations about how we want to eat. So just being aware of this area. Being aware of walking. You know, when we walk to the store, what's our mind doing? Is it ever possible for us to just walk? Is it ever possible for us to walk to the store without already being at the store? Or without being back for whatever we, you know, wherever we started from? Is it ever possible for us to just walk? So to to look at this as well. To look, of course, at the area of relationship. To look at those that we find very easy to love, very easy to feel affectionate towards. To notice when we feel kind of neutral or we feel kind of an instant dislike towards someone and we don't know why. Or when we have even a deep-seated aversion or, um, you know, real hatred towards someone. To see if this can be investigated instead of just um, coasting along. Seeing if we can notice that it's not the other person, it's our relationship to that person. So being aware of our relationship to the inner world of thoughts and emotions, seeing if it's possible to be aware of how we approach an emotion. Are we always scared? Are we always intimidated by difficult emotions? And just, you know, sometimes just to ask this question, am I afraid of feeling this feeling? Is it possible to feel it anyway? Um, You know, is it possible to be aware of the thoughts that are occurring right now? Our practice is coming inside of the body-mind experience, not looking from the outside, not looking through description, not looking through how we think other people are looking at us, not being outside looking in, but coming inside and experiencing our own life, experiencing the body. 
experiencing the mind, the bare experience of there being a body, the bare experience of there being a mind. The Buddha said to feel the body in the body, the mind in the mind, which means, again, to come inside, not to see from the outside, not to impose ideas and concepts and assumptions on the body or on the mind. Is it possible to come inside our life? Meditation does reveal all parts of ourselves if we're willing to sit long enough, um, which is a big if, um, because we want to take all the information that we have really as just information, not as a way to define ourselves, not as a way to come to another conclusion about ourselves, but really just to see all aspects so that we're not attached to seeing ourselves in a particular way. You know, we might be really attached to seeing ourselves as smart. In Cambridge, there's a lot of universities, so it's easy to kind of identify. I never actually had this problem personally, but (laughs) it seems to be somewhat easy to identify with being smart or being intelligent. And then, you know, at some point, recognizing um, maybe I'm not so smart, you know, in this particular area or that particular area. Oftentimes, there's a, a real intelligence in a particular kind of work that one has. And then one goes into a different area, an unfamiliar area. And, um, you know, we're, we're not who we think we are. Or we think that we're really kind, or we think we're kind. And then, you know, of course, we're in a situation where some degree of cruelty comes out. Or we think we're really kind of cruel. You know, nobody knows it. But underneath it all, we're kind of cruel. And then we experience, we discover our kindness. We really see that the kindness is there um, as much as there may be the arising and passing of cruelty. So we get to see this as well. We get to not be surprised by the variety of emotions and thoughts. And this is connecting because we can't really say, you know, I'm only this kind of person. I'm only that kind of person. We sure can say that. But, um, you know, we look long enough and we'll notice that the opposite is true as well. In other words, everything is occurring inside. And so the question is, can we bear with it? You know, can we see it not as information? Oh, I thought I was a kind person. Now I find out I'm really cruel. Now, that's not practice because that's identifying with being cruel and the other way around as well. It's so funny. I remember um, uh, uh, early three-month retreats, and people would stand up at the end of the retreat to say their name and uh, just kind of to introduce themselves in some way and to say maybe a word about the retreat. And a number of people always would stand up and say, well, before this retreat, I thought I was a fairly nice person. (laughs) You know, people would just crack up because, of course, nice is not really something that describes anybody. Yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot more passion than, than nice. Uh, but, um, you know, just, just this discovery, and, and without taking it as who we are, seeing if we can see kindness, seeing if we can see cruelty, seeing if we can see selfishness, seeing if we can see letting go, seeing if we can notice and be aware without being afraid of whatever it is that's occurring, without defining it as who we are and as how things are. There can be a difficult 
space in practice where one is just beginning to discover that one really isn't so nice. And it's a little, you know, it can be a really hard phase because then there is the identification um, with whatever the opposite has been. And you kind of have to be quite compassionate and quite gentle and sit a lot during that phase and, you know, um, have your friends support you. Um, use use different ways to support yourself during that phase because it's great. It's a great phase. It's an important phase. If one skips that phase, we find ourselves at some later point um, quite quite numb or quite um, uh, blinded by something or you know the shadow really looming and not really knowing much about it. In other words, knowing something about freedom but not knowing anything about ourselves. So it's really, really important that some degree of that phase is gone through um, and as little of the identification as possible. In other words, really noticing all parts of ourselves, really being open and vulnerable um, to seeing that which is difficult as well as that which may be quite wonderful that we haven't noticed before either, but not identifying with any of it seeing if we can notice it all coming and going. Ajahn Chah, uh, a, um, a Thai meditation master who died some time ago, said that we have to be aware of heaviness in order to put our burdens down. You know, in other words, we have to be aware of the burden before it's possible to put anything down. So we have to be aware of all aspects of ourselves before we can let go. I mean, it's not so convenient. It happens from moment to moment, and it's not so much we pick it up for years and then we put it down, you know, at some point. It's more of picking it up, of putting it down, of picking it up, of putting it down. But it's a noticing. You know, our practice is noticing, being aware of hidden sources of suffering, sources of suffering that we haven't even known were there. And then the practice is to let it go, to put it down, to not hold it, to not cling, to not box ourselves in or identify ourselves by the particular emotions and thoughts that are occurring inside. That statement actually could be said a million times, a million times in every retreat, maybe moment to moment, because this is really what we do. You know, a thought comes up, this is who we are. An emotion comes up, this is how things are. And instead, recognizing that it's arising, it's passing, it's appearing, it's disappearing. It's basically insubstantial, and it isn't who we are. And at the same time, it's essential information. We need to know what the contents of our thoughts are. We can't just know thinking, thinking forever. We also have to know what we're thinking. You know, if we're judging all day long, It's not enough to just know that thinking is happening and it's just an energy and it's a vibration and it'll come and go and it's insubstantial. We also have to know that judging is happening and that judging is creating suffering, is creating contraction, is creating tension, either towards ourselves or others. And it has to be let go of in order for there to be ease, in order for there to be happiness. So we have to see it in its fullness. We have to see it in its sharpness, in its heaviness, And then there is that option. There is that option to let it go. We may just let it go for a moment, and then it may come back again. We may then just let it go for a moment, and it may come back again. That's fine. You know, it's really a process of very gradually, gradually, um, everything losing its charge 
and, and noticing what we really want to cultivate in our life and what really needs to be let go of. Studying the self has nothing to do with working on ourselves. It doesn't have anything to do with self-improvement. We're not seeing something and then right away saying, oh, I have to change that, I have to become this, I have to become a good person, I have to become a kind person. To identify with being a good person or a kind person is suffering. It's not having a sense of project mind. You know, so, so much in life and so much in practice and so much in everything, there can be this tendency, we see something, we notice something about ourselves, and then immediately we flip over into treating ourselves as projects that need to be fixed. Yeah. Something about ourselves that's not quite right, that needs improvement. And then if we work on it, if we do this, if we do that, at some later date we'll be who we want to be. It doesn't work like that. It's not the practice to go in the direction of self-improvement, to, go to, to hold ourselves as objects. You know, we're not objects. To hold ourselves as objects that need to be changed, that need to be fixed. The transformative process is a natural process, and it comes about through awareness. It comes about through seeing. It doesn't come about through treating ourselves in unkind ways as projects and having that sense of project mind. So he's having some degree of confidence now, this, this area of studying the self has to do with developing, as well, a sense of inner confidence, a sense of self-confidence that we can practice, that we can, each one of us, know inner freedom, and that this inner freedom isn't confined to any particular situation. It doesn't just stay in one place. It's inner. It's inside. It's wherever we go. I practiced in um, England last year, in Devon, England, and if any of you have been there, the sky is incredibly beautiful. It's right down on top of you. I think, I don't know how it works, but it seems like you're kind of up in the sky, and then the sky's lower, and it's immense. It's gigantic. It's just huge. And the retreat center's in the countryside, so it's huge, huge, because there's nothing in the way, no buildings in the way. And I was just, when I, when I left the center, um, I really had, had a little bit of attachment to the sky. I was thinking, this is what I'm going to miss, is the sky. So I came home, and I live in Cambridge, and there are buildings, and, you know, you are kind of way down, and the sky is way up, and it's not the same thing. But I decided to try it out, so I was, when I first got home, I spent more time looking at the sky, and, you know, it's immense, it's beautiful, it's wild, it's, it's extraordinary. It's the same sky. But I hadn't looked at it before. I hadn't noticed it before. Attentiveness leads to wisdom. Studying ourselves leads to discernment. And there is a huge difference between discernment and judgment, and, or discernment and condemnation. Sometimes we get a little bit confused about the two. Aversion to our experience, which means aversion to what it is that we're noticing about ourselves, what it is that we're experiencing, 
Aversion is a pushing away of experience, not wanting it to happen. Um, there's a reactivity in aversion. Um, we, we wish it would go away, and usually, you know, realistically, as quickly as possible. Um, it has to do with having ideals of perfection. Aversion comes in when we have an ideal of being a perfect person or being a perfect human being, being a perfect meditator. So just to notice when there's that pushing away because it is not discernment, and yet sometimes it can be a little bit subtle. And we can think that it is because we're facing something that isn't very pleasant to face about ourselves. There's a sense of separation when aversion is occurring. Whereas discernment, which is really the direction of the practice, which is really where attentiveness brings us is discernment, is wisdom, is waking up more to how things are. Um, discernment is a responsiveness. It's very fluid. It's very um, much happening in the present moment. And with discernment, we're not taking sides. We're really just observing the different voices speaking, the different emotions occurring. But we're not taking sides that this has to go, and this has to stay, and then I'll become that kind of thing. Instead of that, we're noticing that certain tendencies bring a lot of happiness, bring a lot of ease. When we're working with someone that we really can't stand, and we open to it just a little bit, not in an idealistic way, like we're supposed to like everybody, but in a very profound way, seeing if it's possible to touch a sense of affection for that particular person, even though they may be extraordinarily unlikable. You know, just, just touching that, that warmth inside, recognizing that everyone suffers. It can help, you know, and, and even just for a moment, even if it can't be sustained, um, just recognizing that when we feed our feelings of dislike or of hatred, um, suffering is going to be the result. And maybe not even for the other person, suffering is going to be the result. The result for us is going to be suffering because there's contraction, there's tension when we're wrapped up in, in um, hatred and dislike. You know, we're caught in some way. Uh, someone once said that to have an, uh, what is it? Um, well, I can't, I don't have the quote, but something along the lines of it's incredibly time-consuming to have an enemy. You know, it takes a lot of brain cells. It takes a lot of one's daily life um, when there's somebody that we intensely dislike or just dis- dis- intensely want to go away. And so instead of feeding that, you know, which might be a natural tendency, instead of that, we see if we can cultivate something else. And again, just for a moment. And not because we should, not because we ought to, but for the sake of happiness, for the sake of peace for the sake of ease. And so this is how discernment works, is seeing clearly what needs to be cultivated and what needs to be let go of, but not with an an attitude of self-improvement. That's where we have to be a little bit careful here. More simply seeing what arising can be nourished and cared for and what arising can be let go of. So this is one level of studying the self. The next level of studying the self is to forget the self. As Dogen said, 
to study the self is to forget the self. So this is another level. The first is studying the character, noticing the personality, noticing how we move in the world, noticing the emotions that we may not have been aware of, opening up to ourselves in a personal way. The second level is impersonal. It's really noticing, studying the self, and then forgetting the self. This doesn't mean any degree of self-denial. It doesn't mean holding any diminished sense of self. Because in order to forget the self, there does need to be some degree of confidence, of inner confidence. We could say self-confidence there needs to be in order to forget the self. There has to be an inner strength, an inner respect, an inner self-respect in order to forget the self. So it's not implying that all of a sudden, you know, we forget the self and we disappear, we, we go away in a puff of smoke or something, or we walk around really vague or really lost, and, you know, we forget what our name is, and <laughs> somebody calls our name, and who am I? I'm not, I'm not anybody, you know? that kind of thing. That's not at all what forgetting the self is. It's really an openness to the universe. It's really a responsiveness to the world, um, allowing ourselves to be less preoccupied with, with thoughts, with stories. It has to do with opening the sense doors, allowing all the sense doors to be open without clinging without holding on in any kind of a personal way, without isolating one particular thought or one particular feeling as being how things are or as being who we are. So really this willingness to open in a much wider and expansive way to this world, to this universe, to others as well. It's a sense of spaciousness, of having just a lot more room than the narrow sense of self that we carry around with us a lot of the time. It's really allowing that just for a moment to be forgotten, that narrow, rigid sense of who we are, whether it's good or whether it's bad. It's usually quite rigid and narrow. So letting that go into a sense of spaciousness. When we're very full, uh, when we're too full with, um, with stories and with thoughts and with thinking that what is happening is what's happening, instead of being open to the wisdom of what's happening, um, you find yourself um, not, not really appreciative, not, not really um, open to how things are. This is um, just a little poem by Silesius, Angelus Silesius. God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. Mm. <laughs> Want me to read it one more time? Okay. <laughs> you didn't get the joke. <laughs> oh, okay. God, and if you have trouble with the word God, just let that go. You can say, you know, universe. <laughs> Whose love and joy are present everywhere can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. Mm. Mm. In other words, if if you are there, if there's a rigid sense of yourself, if there's a being caught in particular stories, it's impossible to experience um, the, the joy and the love that is available to us. So letting go is not a self-diminishing. It's an expansiveness. It's a spaciousness. And it's allowing for love and joy to be present. 
It's allowing for that which is available to us to actually be experienced. Mm. The study of the self, studying the self, is the personal realm. It's the relative realm. It means looking at the differences between us. And the differences between us, you know, sometimes they're a pain and sometimes they're difficult. Lots of times it's wonderful that there's so many differences between us. You know, if we were with somebody who was exactly like us, probably we would get quite bored. Maybe for a while it'd be interesting, because you know how in you can kind of take your own mind a lot more than somebody else repeating something to yourself. You know, when, when your mind in practice, you're just sitting there, and the mind is saying the same thing over and over. Sometimes it's still interesting after the millionth time. Or if somebody was talking to you, saying that, you'd say, you know, what a bore. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. But, you know, the, the differences that are between us, the, the areas of, of kind of what I call delightful tension, um, where we don't agree all the time, where we see things differently, um, this is really a, a great arena of life. You know, it's, it's where a lot of joy comes in, or it's where a lot of laughter comes in. Um, you know, as long as we don't get caught up, as long as we don't, don't argue about it or make it into, I'm right, you're wrong, the differences are, you know, are often quite delightful. The forgetting of this self has to do with the impersonal. It has to do with that which is common between us, that which is not different, kind of the common elements of being a sentient being. The fact that we are breathing, all of us are breathing. The fact that change occurs, change occurs to everybody, no matter what the personality, no matter what the character, change occurs to everybody. Noticing that which is connecting, that which brings us together, that which is common between all beings, whether we have personally strong good feelings or whether we have strong bad feelings, there is still something that is the same between us. And so just recognizing this as well. Forgetting the self has to do with letting go of how we think about ourselves and really just living our life in a very simple way. By simple, I mean just in the moment being with how things are, instead of thinking about ourselves so much, instead of having like an overview, am I doing it right right now? Am I doing it wrong right now? If I do this, how will things be? You know, that whole realm of anxiety, it means allowing that when it's possible to be let go of. Sometimes it's not possible and it needs to be accepted. Other times it is possible and it, it is possible to stop describing what one is doing as one is doing it. It's possible to just live one's life without evaluating it so much, without assessing it so much, without having this idea of I am a, you know, I am going somewhere. I am a human being going somewhere, on my way somewhere, and instead resting, settling back into the present moment in a very simple way. Or you know, we, we can have this very strongly, um, an, an I that is going to, at some point, way in the future, be enlightened. You know, holding that sense of I am going to be enlightened. An I never gets enlightened. It's, it's not possible for an I to be enlightened because there's that narrowness, there's that rigidity. Um, there's no sense of, of life as it is. So no one is ever going to get enlightened, actually. Um, doesn't doesn't work that way. 
Uh, your no-self may get enlightened, but yourself will never get enlightened. I hate to give you the bad news. Mm. Mm. So looking at the images that we have, the stories that we've told ourselves, and finding that we can perhaps be less imprisoned by concepts, concepts about age that torture us so much. We're too old, we're too young. I have a, a step-niece. When she was young, she was always too young. She enormous suffering because she always wanted to be older. Now she's a little bit older. I mean, not much. But um, now she thinks she's too old. Now she thinks she's a little bit over the hill. And it's, she lives in Hollywood, so maybe that's, <laughs> that's why. She's only, I mean, she's 24, you know. <laughs> so it's a, it's a different culture. But, <laughs> but, but you know, such, such a lot of suffering that we go, go through about a concept. You know, it's not even real. It's a concept. Um, concepts about education, about how much education we've had, about um, the little education that we've had, about how we may need more, letting go and seeing if we can educate ourselves in the present moment. Um, concepts about gender, concepts about occupation, concepts about doing what one wants to, about being unemployed, you know, the concept of, of being unemployed. I'm not saying that unemployment is not suffering because, of course, if you need to work, one needs to work. But the feeding it, the I am an unemployed person, is very different than being unemployed and going out and trying to find work. You know, that, that sense of losing confidence because of the concept, because of the idea. Letting go of our concepts about our history. You know, because we can, we do, of course, at times in our life, need to look at our personal histories and work with our histories in very careful and compassionate ways. This is absolutely true. And at the same time, we may want to remember that we have a selective memory. And so we only remember various aspects from the day to day or from yesterday or from a long time ago. So just as it's true that for many of us it's necessary to go into the past and to work very compassionately with one's personal history at the same time, you know, this realm of forgetting the self would be also remembering our selective memory. So both are true. Both, are, both have to be held in the very same hand. Forgetting the self is an openness. It's a softness. It's a receptivity to life. It's a sensing rather than thinking, than overly being caught in thought. It's allowing ourselves to sense life, to sense things. It's an emptiness, empty of congestion, empty of contraction, empty of clinging, full of compassion, full of wisdom. When we forget the self, there's no perception of being a wise person. Maybe wisdom reveals itself. Maybe wisdom is present. But there is no perception of, I am a wise person just as there is no perception of I'm an unwise person, there is just the revealing of wisdom from moment to moment. There's an open response to life rather than a closed reaction. And the result is ease. The result is peace. The result is inner freedom. So we get to the third line, to study Buddhism is to study oneself. To study oneself is to forget the self. The result of forgetting the self 
is to be enlightened by all things in the world. This is the result. When we forget ourselves, we are awakened by everything in the world. We're open to being taught by whatever our experiences may be. We're not quite as caught in form about how the teaching should be, how um, it has to be in order for us to learn. There's more of an openness and a receptivity of being taught actually by the present moment, allowing our greatest teacher, and our greatest teacher always is the present moment, allowing the present moment to teach us the lessons that we need to learn, the lessons that we need to learn to know happiness, to know freedom. There's a sense of intimacy with everything that we experience instead of separation, instead of overly analyzing, and instead of a personal agenda about how things have to be or how things should be, instead of assessing our experiences along the lines of this is a good experience, this is a bad experience, I just know it, it is. Instead, there's an openness when experience occurs to see it as experience. So often, something happens to us that we think is like the worst thing that could possibly happen. And then 10 years later, we say, oh, I'm so glad that happened. You know, my life totally changed. And it's not as if we would say, I wished that did happen. You know, it's not being idiotic about it and and wishing that that terrible things will happen. It's not like that at all. But it's also just, just recognizing how many times something difficult has happened and our reflection about it later being quite different, where we view it in a really different way. Something not so good, we're thinking, oh, you know, thank goodness I went through this because something changed inwardly. Mm. And then sometimes, you know, it's the same in the other way. We think something great is happening. We've met the love of our life. We're, you know, we're just just dying of excitement. And then two years later, we, we realize not. It's not true, or whatever it may be. You know, we get really happy. We get really excited about something. And then we see, oh, it wasn't what I thought it, it was. Yeah, it just wasn't what I thought it was. And so we learn through whatever experience we may have. We find, if we're open to being awakened by all things in the world, that everything becomes workable in some way, that it's possible to learn transformative lessons from every situation that we find ourselves in. The deepest words of the wise teach us the same as the whistle of the wind when it blows or the sound of the water when it is flowing. The deepest words of the wise teach us the same as the whistle of the wind when it blows or the sound of the water when it is flowing. Are we willing to be that open? Are we willing to be awakened by each moment of our life, whatever our life contains? This is our question in practice. Are we willing to be awakened? When we're willing to be awakened, there is a sense of inner freedom. There is a sense of inner spaciousness. And we see that both the difficulties and the beauties of life, the great sorrows that most human beings experience, I would say all human beings experience at some point or another, and the great joys that it's possible to experience as a human being, all of it is part of life. All of it is part of a rich life. And this is why it's said that 
for the student of meditation, every day is a fortunate day. Mm. Let me end with a, um, a poem by Yuvav Nuk. The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, moving like a weed in the river. The sky and the strong wind have moved the spirit inside me till I am carried away, trembling with joy. Let's just take a moment and sit together. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings be free from all forms of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.